Well, Sheriff, thank you so much for uh, joining our um, podcast on today, um, Shades and Justice. Um, and some hot spots and uh, I just really appreciate you just being willing to share some of your expertise and experience uh, so there's been a lot of tension and um, uh, in our community with Black Lives Matter and so uh, your willingness to talk to me on today is um, pretty exciting and so I wanted to just um, say thank you again well, sure, absolutely. I, I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. I, I think, you know, it, it's clear uh, in our country uh, we can't have too much dialogue about uh, these issues and these things. And uh, you know, people want to know, and people uh, need to know uh, who we are and where we are and how we do and all those all those kinds of things. So I'm happy to share. Okay. All right. Well, we'll start right in. Um, earlier this year, we contacted you about uh, what you were doing in regards to COVID uh, for your staff and for those that are in prison there. And you gave me a very detailed report. And man, that was, that was awesome. I was pretty impressed that uh, our sheriff's department was on top of things as far as really providing a healthy environment for both their staff and uh, those that were in jail. So do you mind sharing just a little bit about what you're doing even now to continue to uh, have a safe environment for both your, your staff and those that are in jail there? Okay, sure. Um, there were a whole list of things, a whole litany of things that we did. And, and of course that morphed as we, moved through it and more information came out from either the CDC or from our local uh, health department or even best practices through National Institute of Corrections, uh, American Jail Association, and even our own uh, contract medical provider uh, who is WellPath that provides our medical services here at the jail. And there were, you know, there were internal and external things. So, for example, externally, one of the things that we did, we put some guidelines out for the local police uh, about who we would accept into the jail and who we would not accept. And we really restricted that to felony arrests and or violent misdemeanor mm -hmm. arrests. Uh, if someone was a danger to themselves or others, even if it was a misdemeanor situation and the police believed they need to be incarcerated, uh, they brought them here. So externally, that's what we did. And we, we, we got a lot of cooperation from our local law enforcement people that typically arrest people and bring them here. They were issuing summonses or citations and releasing them or they were issuing notices to appear if they had a warrant, certain warrant situations or whatever. And then of course, you know, the others that I outlined, we brought them in. Internally, the first thing we uh, started doing was with regard to our staff, we immediately started screening our staff each day when they came to work mm -hmm. uh, for temperature, 
and the symptoms, which nearly everybody's experiencing if you if you've tried to get into a building you know, yep. somewhere, particularly a government building, they're going to ask you, you know, have you had these symptoms? Have you traveled anywhere? And we take your temperature and do you have a fever? We started doing that right away. Mm-hmm. Within the first two weeks or so, maybe the first week to 10 days, we identified one deputy that was symptomatic who, mm-hmm. who, immediately started isolating at home and then eventually went for a COVID test and was confirmed to have the, the virus. So the next step included, you heard, everybody knows the term contract, contact tracing. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, who worked with that deputy or who was that deputy around? And then we notified them. We asked them to self-isolate and monitor for the symptoms and any staff member that came in that had a fever or was symptomatic, we did not let them come to work. We had them self-isolate. And we had an internal process at Unified Government where we notified the health department and our HR department. And they monitored during that time. Some employees went for tests. Some, the symptoms cleared up in a few days. And once they were symptom-free for 72 hours, we let them come back to work. Mm -hmm. The other thing we did internally was we took one of the housing units and we established it as an intake isolation unit. So any of those people that were coming to jail, we screened them first in the Sally port for symptoms. Mm -hmm. If they were symptom-free, and pretty much anybody that the police brought, they were symptom free. Then we allowed them in the facility where medical did a full screening of them. And if they were making bond and being released, we isolated them in the intake until they made their bond and they were released. If they were staying with us because of a felony charge or something more serious, uh, misdemeanor, violent crime, we put them in what we call F-Pod was our intake and isolation unit. And we kept them there for 14 days minimum. Medical would go in and screen them for the symptoms. And the protocol was that if anybody was symptomatic, we would get them a COVID test. Mm-hmm. Well, we never did have to have any of them. Okay take a COVID test. So mm-hmm. after 14 days, if they cleared, then they were moved into general population. And so we've just kind of had them moving in and out of FPOD ever since that time. And as I reported to you back then, and I'm very happy and proud to report to you today, we've not had one inmate who's in custody here with the virus. So wow, that's, that's good. really, really incredible feat for a facility our size or, or larger. There's not a lot of jails that, that can say that. And anybody who's been watching the news knows what happened at Lansing. And yeah. so we were determined to not let that happen. Any inmates that we had farmed out to other facilities, we left farmed out so that okay. we took a chance on them coming back and bringing it with them. Mm-hmm. Um, only those farmed out inmates came back that 
had finished their sentence or somebody they were ready to make bond and they were being released. So if we brought them mm -hmm. back here, once again, we screened them, we kept them in intake and then we then they were released. Okay. So we had about 82 or so inmates that were farmed out. Uh, that number has dropped all the way to 48. So that many people either finished their sentence or they were able to make their bond or their case got uh, adjudicated successfully and they came back here and were released. Okay, well, thank you. And uh, I think congratulations were in order because that's not the typical report that we're hearing from around the country in regards to facilities. So thank you. Um, how are you maintaining social distancing in the jail and keeping things clean? How do you get that done? Yeah, so that's a, a, another part of the internal response, our medical uh, team came up with some recommendations. So for example, when it is time for rec or feeding or med pass, well, we just don't let as many inmates out okay. at one time. And, and they, they all were given handouts and guidelines about the virus and mm -hmm. be sure you're washing your hands more often. We're doing everything we can to keep the virus out until we for sure know that nobody in here has it, mm -hmm. maintain this social distancing. Uh, we explained what it was. So we had fewer out and moving around at a time so that they could maintain the social distancing. And when they went to their rec recreation time, they were encouraged once again to maintain the distance and so forth. And really, uh, I'm, I'm once again, I'm pleased to report we had a high level of compliance with mm -hmm. that from our inmate population. They didn't want to get sick either. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they were uh, compliant. They were by and large understanding. We, we had to eliminate commissary because mm -hmm. early on, once again, it was this virus can live on surfaces. And so if you're bringing, mm -hmm. you know, stacks in and things like that or whatever, we didn't know. So we eliminated commissary and we, we started giving them uh, toiletries on a more regular basis. And the other thing we did was we closed visitation. Mm -hmm. uh, so we eliminated visitation. But some of the things that happened in response to those initiatives were we worked with our telephone vendor to give more phone calls to oh. inmates and also mm -hmm. with our vendor that provides video visitation uh, so that video visitation was more readily available. If people had an internet connection mm -hmm. somewhere, they could go and set up a visit and, and visit like we are virtually. Yeah. Uh, and we also extended that capacity and capability for both the courts as mm -hmm. well as the defense attorneys so that okay. they can continue to be able to meet with their clients and work on their cases and keep their cases moving toward adjudication. And so um, that's how we managed social distancing inside the facility. Okay. Um, Sheriff Ash, a couple years ago, I witnessed a, a young lady um, uh, be arrested by several of your uh, deputies. And uh, I contacted you at that time because uh, I was devastated. The young lady was such a small uh, young lady, maybe maybe 100, 115 pounds. 
and she was maybe five foot tall and about three of your deputies arrested her uh, all over 200 pounds and close to six foot is not six foot tall. They forced her to the ground uh, and then they lifted her up and put her in the back seat of the squad car. In the meantime, she was screaming and yelling, help me, help me. So all of us who were in the community, we were actually visiting the um, uh, farm market there across from the UG at the time. And uh, we witnessed this and I call myself trying to take pictures of it and I, I missed the main part of it. Uh, I did come to you and actually talk to you about that whole incident. Would you yes. like to share a, a little bit because there was some uh, preliminary events that happened before she was out in the community and it helped me a little bit uh, to understand what was going on. Sure. Uh, so this young lady uh, is, is, is a known offender here and has been unfortunately in, the, in, an, in and out and about the criminal justice system for a while. She had a, a court hearing um, across the street in the court services building at 812 North 7th Street, the old federal courthouse. So she was there for a hearing and that's when she, you know, first became unruly and, and actually, you know, non-compliant. So uh, she was acting out and yelling in the courtroom and cursing the judge out and other people. And so the judge ordered her to be taken into custody. So she immediately resisted those attempts. Um, pushed her way past a couple of people in the courtroom and then encountered the building security guard out right outside of the courtroom. Uh, she had a physical altercation with him. He was attempting to, to secure her and was calling for assistance, you know, from the sheriff's office, from the deputies. In the process, uh, he uh, I can't remember if he got scratched on the face or if he actually ended up getting a, a busted lip um, and his glasses were broken in that process. She was able to break free. She got outside the building and that's how she made her way from there down to the UG parking lot in the area of 6th and Barnett where the farmer's market was. All the people were out there for the farmer's market. You were, were this is where you, this incident took place, you know, that you were talking about. So in the meantime, the deputies are responding to this security uh, guard's request for assistance. And so this, that all kind of converged in the area where you talked about uh, mm -hmm. there. So uh, she resisted, of course, she resisted the attempts of the deputy to, you know, take her into custody. And so it ultimately took uh, the three of them to sort of get her to the ground and then mobilize where they could get her handcuffed. Uh, in the process, she kicked, you know, and struck uh, those deputies a couple of times in the process of, th of that. And so uh, once they were able to get her handcuffed <clears throat> and she was not being compliant and getting to the 
sheriff's car or getting inside the transport car. And they had to physically, as you described it, it took three of them to pick her up, you know, get her over there and actually get her inside the, the car. Once she was inside the car, uh, she, she was kicking, you know, kicking the doors. She was kicking at the glass. And um, so they made a decision rather than try to um, use any other control techniques on her, maybe to get like secure her legs and that. They said, let's just get her over to the Sally Porter and get her over to the jail and where we'll have a better opportunity to, you know, to, to manage her. We've got other, we've got a restraint chair and some other things over there that we can put, um, you know, people who are combative in. So th those events are, they're, they're very unpleasant. They're not good to look at as we see in recent events, you know, even on the television where you've seen her, if you watch PD live or when you could watch that, or when you, you know, watch cops and you see uh, those, those processes and they, and they, they particularly look bad, as you said, when you have a smaller statue, you know, female uh, and, and, you know, three big male uh, deputies or officers who are, you know, trying to get this arrest uh, affected and, and get somebody uh, under control. <clears throat> but uh, size is deceptive sometimes. Um, and in this young lady's case, uh, she had actually battered the security guard, somebody in the courtroom before that, and, um, you know, actually, like I said, kick and struck, tried to bite at the officers who were trying to get her in custody. So it's very unpleasant, it's unpleasant business. And, you know, the deputies, you know, really don't take any pleasure in it. They would just assume people just turn around, put their hands behind their backs, get the cuffs on, come and have a seat in the car and, and go on from there. But that being said, once, uh, you know, officers, law enforcement officers are in the act of making a lawful, you know, judicial arrest and custody, um, the, the law and the policy says you can use whatever force is reasonably necessary to affect that arrest. In other words, you don't have to say, okay, she doesn't want to go and she's not compliant. So we're just going to let her, we're just going to let her go. That's, that's not a, that's not an acceptable option either. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly understand that. Um, and to the naked eye, like myself and those others in the community that thought it looked like excessive force for such a young lady. And I think that's why I went the extra mile to come to you personally and just ask you, what in the world was going on because it, it did seem like excessive force and once i talked to you uh it helped a little bit but uh i would just assume to the average community individual they would be very appalled at, at seeing something like that and uh, it's interesting what you said you said um that the policy say if they're resisting arrest uh it's it's okay to do whatever is necessary to get that person in. So I'm grateful the young lady didn't get a knee on her neck or anything like that. They eventually did get her in the car and she moved forward. So, so what kind of training uh, do you have now for your deputies? Um, uh, is there any new thing? Are you all looking at new policies when it comes to excessive force, when or when not to use it? And, um, uh, I, I have a couple of other uh, 
questions you can just all answer together. In your training, do you have cultural competency or cultural diversity, de-escalation tactics, use of deadly force, and sexual harassment? What, what do you do in training in those arenas? Yeah, so before I get to an answering those things, I want to address one thing that you said. We can't okay. do, you know, we can't do just whatever is necessary. And so what I want to do is I want to actually share with you language directly from the policy here. Okay. To, that, that this is what our deputies are trained on, and this is what the policy said. The policy, you everyone needs to know and understand that police policy is written based on any applicable federal uh, laws, including the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution, uh, any appellate court decisions, Supreme Court decisions, 10th mm -hmm. Circuit Court of Appeals decisions for those of us here in Kansas or the Kansas Supreme Court uh, okay. decisions and so on and so forth. And so those laws, you know, uh, give us certain, certain guidelines. Okay. And, 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 and I just want to quote from the policy so that everybody understands. Okay. And this is universal, largely, for police departments anywhere. The use of force by law enforcement personnel is a matter of critical concern, both to the public and to the law enforcement community. With what's going on right now, nobody argues or disputes that. It is mm -hmm. of critical concern. Deputies are involved on a daily basis in numerous and varied interactions and, when warranted, may use reasonable force in carrying out their duties. Deputies must have an understanding of and a true appreciation for their authority and the limitations mm -hmm. to their authority. Okay. This is especially true with respect to overcoming resistance while engaged in the performance of law enforcement duties. That's what you asked me about yeah. in the case of the young lady. The Sheriff's Office recognizes and respects the value of all human life and dignity without prejudice to anyone. Vesting deputies with the authority to use reasonable force and to protect the public welfare requires monitoring evaluation, and careful balancing of all interests. And we require all of those things um, in our policy. Okay. Let's talk about specifically what happened in the George Floyd issue. Any deputy present and observing another deputy using force that is clearly beyond that which is objectively reasonable under the circumstances shall, when in a position to do so, intercede to prevent the use of unreasonable force. Mm -hmm. So we require that. A deputy That's who good. observes another employee use force that exceeds the degree of force permitted by law shall immediately report these observations to a supervisor. Okay, so what is objectively reasonable and what is reasonable and what's unreasonable and all of that? Deputies shall use only that amount of force that reasonably appears necessary given the facts and the circumstances perceived by the deputy 
not the onlookers, perceived by the deputy at the time of the event to accomplish a legitimate law enforcement purpose. Okay, and then it goes on to explain reasonable is more and so on and so forth. So we can't just do anything and everything because at the end of the day, whatever we end up doing is going to be viewed through the lens of objective reasonableness by a trained, experienced law enforcement officer under the same set of facts and the same set of circumstances that were going on at that time. That's how the courts adjudicate that. There must be a law, a legitimate law enforcement purpose. It must be in the process of a legitimate and making a legitimate and lawful, lawful authorized arrest. Mm -hmm. And it must be then uh, reasonable. Only objectively reasonable force may be used. Not anything we want to do. So, um, I, w I wanted to clarify that. Now, back okay. to you know, back to the training questions and all of those kind of things. We have a, a policy um, on uh, that deals with cultural competence, cultural diversity, uh, you know, de-escalation, and all of those type of issues in our bias-based policing policy. That policy is written to fulfill the requirements of Kansas State Statute 22-4609 uh, uh, and 22-4610 for sure. And that statute and that law uh, and those requirements are overseen by the Attorney General for the state of Kansas, Derek Schmidt, and his office has responsibility for that. There is training, annual training that is required in this area that all certified law enforcement officers must complete successfully each year. And there is a reporting mechanism that as reports of, of bias uh, policing, uh, some people would say racial profiling, policing, or, or you know things of that nature, we are required to not only investigate those incidents and so forth and reach out to whoever we need to to assist in that investigation whether it would be the local district attorney's office or the kansas bureau of investigation or the attorney general's office or possibly the fbi we are required then to submit reports to the attorney general's office by july 1st of each calendar year so as we are right now in the middle of june we would be getting ready to uh, prepare that report and submit it. I did some checking before getting on the podcast with you today. There have been no complaints uh, filed with us or any other entity that I'm aware of that has notified us, hey, we've gotten a complaint against uh, your personnel. So we will be preparing our report um, here, we'll have it ready to go and submit it to the Attorney General's office by July 1st. So, Sheriff, a couple, couple questions real quick, and I, I know we're getting close to the end, and thank you for being so transparent. Um, you mentioned the name of the training was Bias-Based Police, what? The name of the policy is Bias-Based Policing. 
police the training is referred to as fair and impartial policing. So fair the policy is a prohibition against bias-based policing. Okay? okay. It prohibits bias-based policing and it clarifies uh, how officers may go about using factors, for example, such as race or gender or anything like that, that may be used in the general description of a suspect uh, who has uh, allegedly you know, committed or is under reasonable suspicion or probable cause by an officer of having committed a crime. And you gave a couple of numbers, 22, you gave two, two numbers, 22 That's right. policy the, numbers. The, the, uh, well, the relevant statute numbers uh, regarding that are 22-4606 through 22-4611. Anybody can go online and look those statutes up on the uh, state of Kansas legislative uh, website. You can look those statutes up and it'll tell you exactly what the requirement is with for law enforcement with respect okay. to that. And then okay. all of our policies and training comport to the requirements of, in those statutes. Okay. And then um, lastly, uh, could you just tell me how you require uh, accountability from your deputies? Okay. So one of, one of the first things is we have in-car cameras and we have body-worn cameras. We were the first law enforcement agency in uh, Wanda County here to, to get to have them, to, to, to get them, particularly those that sync up. So that right there gives us uh, monitoring capability. It gives us review capability. Uh, if, if there's a complaint, we investigate, uh, you know, the, the video becomes apparent. And we not only use them in the field, we use the body-worn cameras and other handheld cameras in the detention center. And of course, as part of the overall security of the detention center, there are a lot of cameras in the detention center in the various housing units. Number two, the policy requires that any time a deputy is involved in a defensive action, use of force, the supervisor, what well, first of all, those cameras are to be activated and, and then immediately two things happen. A supervisor is notified and in the event of an injury uh, to an, an inmate or an in arrestee, uh, medical attention is summoned, whether it's EMS on the outside or our medical people uh, inside the detention center. So we're gonna get supervisor to come and look and review and begin the process of evaluating. And that includes checking the camera, camera, any video that's available, and ensuring that medical assistance is, is summoned if, if and when you know, it's necessary or appropriate. Reporting must be done, written reports must be completed. Those must be reviewed first by that frontline supervisor and then by a first level of command and ultimately through at least two other levels of command up to our use of force coordinators. 
who are responsible for monitoring all of them and completing an annual report recommending changes to the policy, changes to the training, um, adding something or taking something away, uh, whatever would be appropriate. Okay. Wow, that sounds uh, good. I, I We just have seen, you know, over the last couple of months where uh, reports have been altered or not turned in, cameras definitely not on. And so it's just good to hear that uh, we do have those things in place and there, that there is accountability that is required. So, well, yes, now yeah. the, occasionally those things may happen. Uh, we had a situation in the field just a couple of weeks ago. The deputy was not in a regular car, was in a spare car. The video was not functioning. The video was not working you know, in the spare car. So sometimes we've got to coordinate those things, get the vendor back out here to find out why it's not working and, and get it fixed and we may have an incident. But in the case of reports, anytime we learn that somebody has neglected to write a report or fail to report, uh, first of all, they're directed to write a report. And the next thing that happens is we're gonna begin a show for cause and a disciplinary procedure on somebody that violates any of these policies. And we're gonna step through that process in accordance with our procedures on disciplinary action and in concert with the provisions of the, the FOP contract uh, memorandum of understanding. Okay. And, we're gonna, and then we're gonna deal with those employees appropriately. Okay. All the way up to and including termination, if that's if that's what is warranted. Okay, that's good to hear. <laughs> well, um, I promise not to hold you more than thirty minutes, so I, I um, I'm a little over. That's but, okay. Uh, I'm maybe <laughs> maybe in the future we can talk again. I'd love to talk to you about the the uh, pod for the women, and I'd also like to talk to you about the juvenile uh, justice piece. Well, I have exciting news on both of those things, so we definitely need to do another session. Yay. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. Well, thank you, Sheriff Ash. Have a wonderful day. Certainly appreciate your time, but I really appreciate your transparency as far as the policies that are out there and what you uh, are doing. Uh, and some of the tactics that are used and just be, being able to explain to me what we saw out in the community. Okay, well, thank you again for being a part of uh, Shades and Justice Hotspots with Dr. Evelyn Hill. Thank you, Sheriff Ash.